if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, let me invite you to open with me to 1 John chapter 4. Back the New Testament, right before 2 John, you'll find 1 John chapter 4. I want to encourage you to pull out those notes from your celebration guide. While you're pulling them out, I uh, had the opportunity the last few weeks in the series, we've started off listening to people's stories and people's stories of how Christ has changed their lives, people's stories of how God is at work <clears throat> in this faith family. This morning I want to share with you a couple of stories to give us a picture of how even what we're studying this week is not just affecting what's going on in this faith family and not even just affecting what, what's going on in, in around the world. I want, you to hear, I want you to hear a story from somebody who wrote me a letter who attended worship with us on June 3rd who actually lives in Arizona. I'll condense the letter a little bit. It was about four pages long, but I want you to hear what it said. It attended service on June 3rd when we, was ta- we were talking about how God is always at work around us, and we need to be available and open to what he's doing around us. Here's what he writes from Phoenix. I'm writing to share an experience I had with you on a plane from Birmingham to Phoenix the Monday after I worshiped with you all. Before I got on the plane, I prayed that God would sit someone beside me who needed to know how much he loved them. Sure enough, uh, he went on to talk about how a gentleman sat down next to him. He said he dozed off for about an hour. But when he woke up, he said he simply prayed and began a conversation with this guy who was sitting next to him in his words. He said, I asked him a few questions, and he told me that he was in Birmingham visiting family, but he lived in Phoenix. He was a chef at a country club there. He explained that he'd been looking for a new job. I shared my story with him, and all of a sudden, this guy started crying and sharing his heart with me. He had accepted Christ at an earlier age, although he felt as if his heart wasn't right with God. He asked me to pray for him. So as we were on the final approach into Phoenix, I put my hand on his shoulder and wept with him as we thanked God for the love that he has for us. Just a picture of how maybe God desires not just to do this here, but around the world. Here's another story. I'm guessing most of you are familiar with Rick and Bubba and uh, are familiar with the radio this is a story that Bubba sent to me this week. Somebody had, had written in to them, and this is what the person who wrote in to them said. Guys, I have to tell you what just happened to me. This guy writes, this morning on my way to work, I was listening to you all on the radio, and I let my speed get away from me, so I was pulled over by a state trooper. He asked me if I knew why he had pulled me over. I told him probably because I was speeding. He said yes, and asked me why I was speeding. I told him that I was listening to Rick and Bubba. (laughs) Hoping that would help me, I smiled. He didn't think it was funny. The trooper then began to explain to me that he didn't like listening to Rick and Bubba because he hated it when they began to talk about God and what he is doing in their lives. I took a chance and asked why that bothered him. He then explained to me why it bothered him. He said that no matter what he did, God wouldn't do anything with his life. Knowing that isn't true, I began to share what God has done is in doing and is doing in my life. It wasn't long till I realized that he did not have a personal relationship with Christ. After explaining this to him, I got out of my van, we walked to the back, and I had the privilege of leading this straight state trooper to give his heart to Christ. What a way to start the day, right? Not only did I not get a ticket, but I also led this man to Christ. Now, 
bad theology would take this and say, we need to go speeding this week, okay? That's not, that's not what in any way I'm encouraging. But he closes out and he says, thank you, Bubba, for being so bold with your faith. It gave me the opportunity to be bold and share my faith. What God does that we might not even see as we're involved with him in this mission. And then we've gone from Arizona to the highways and byways of Birmingham to our faith family. One person from our faith family writes, every day I have the opportunity to minister to patients who are facing the crisis of cancer in their lives. Today a patient came in who I've been giving monthly treatments to for several years. This gentleman typically comes into the chemo treatment room in a wheelchair. Today he actually walked into the room. I was so excited to see him walking and told him what a blessing that God was making him better and stronger. He told me that he'd done many bad things in his life and didn't feel that God could ever love him. Wow, what an appointment from God. I shared with him how Jesus covers all our sin and guilt. I will continue to build this relationship and hopefully be able to, see, to lead him to see God's love for him. I have missed many opportunities to share with people who are facing crises in their lives, and I will not continue to do so. He's working all around us. He puts us in situations. So are we going to be ready? The whole purpose of this series is that we would know how to share our story. And then what we're doing is we're thinking about the three different primary effects of sin as a result of Genesis chapter 3. Guilt, fear, and shame. And what we're doing is the goal of this series that we'd be able to walk away from the series, being able to tell our story, and then being able to tell God's story as it relates to guilt, God's story as it relates to fear, and God's story as it relates to shame. So this morning, we're going to dive into God's story in a fear-based culture. Last week, we talked a little bit about how, how different cultures, these elements of guilt, shame, and fear are more predominant in some than others. They're pervasive in all, but but in some cultures, we talked about how Western culture is, is predominantly guilt-based. We talk a lot about right and wrong, being okay. We want to be innocent as opposed to guilty. As long as I'm okay, you're okay, then we're, we're, we feel safe then. But that's not the way everybody in the world thinks. There's a lot of people in the world who, instead of thinking along the lines of a guilt and innocence kind of paradigm, think more along the lines of fear and power. Let me give you a couple of illustrations. These are firsthand accounts from some missionaries overseas. One writes, as we drew near to the village, we could hear the sound of drums. As we drew closer, we could see people dancing and withering on the ground. A man approached us and explained that we could not go any further. The village was doing a sacred rite to improve the economy and bring more trade to the area. So we were escorted away and not given a chance to share the gospel. We later heard that a human sacrifice had been offered to the spirits that day. Another missionary writes, we arrived in a village when a rainmaking ceremony was about to begin. They invited us to watch. A black bull was led to the edge of the village where it faced the direction from which the rain would come. They cut the animal's throat and it fell over on its left side to the delight of all. This indicated that the sacrifice was acceptable. The men then cut up the meat and cooked it. As the meat was cooking, an old man began to shout a prayer to the spirits for rain. Soon everyone joined in. After the meat was eaten, the shouting turned into dancing. The villagers danced all afternoon until the rain actually came. It rained so heavily that everyone had to run for shelter. Did the rituals bring the rain? To the natives, it was obvious, and there was no way we could convince them otherwise. Now, that seems far-fetched, even first-century kind of biblical-type stories, but that's actually a reality in different cultures in our world today. Maybe in Latin American, Asian, 
African cultures, more animistic cultures, there is a, a very keen awareness of spirits and supernatural forces at work all around you. Maybe the enlightenment and rationalism has not infiltrated some of these cultures quite as much as they have our own. And, and there's a lot of thought about how God's spirits, ancestors are at work. They could be at work in different people. They could be at work in inanimate object, objects like trees or rocks or hills. And people talk about those spirits, gods, whatever they might be, like they are people. They, they can be appeased. They need to be feared. They can determine the direction of things. Even when something goes wrong, then oftentimes those gods or spirits are attributed with why that went wrong. If somebody is sick, then obviously the gods or the spirits may be seeking revenge or may be mad about something. If the rain is not coming, then the gods are obviously not happy. Some kind of spirits are not happy. And so what can we do to appease them? As a result, many cultures in the world have all kinds of rituals and rites, superstitions, we might call them, but very serious things that you do, rites of passage, rituals that you do at certain times or certain points during the year that you always participate in in order to appease the gods, in order to please the spirits, in order to get them on your side. You want to have power with the gods and spirits. As a result, and I've seen this firsthand, even in countries like Indonesia, as well as parts of other parts of Asia that I've been in, Religious leaders are very, have, have a lot of influence in those particular cultures. They may be called priests, they may be called witch doctors, they may be called shamans, but there are different types of religious leaders who apparently have power with the spirits and power with the gods. And as a result, those leaders hold these cultures in their grip. So what do you do when you find yourself in a culture like that? What do you do when you find yourself in a situation where this picture of guilt and innocence may not be the best starting point for the gospel, it's definitely a part of the gospel. What if this picture of fear and power is actually where the gospel hits as well? Now, I mentioned that many of these cultures are prevalent in Latin America, Africa, and Asia, even some of the people uh, from this faith family who are going on mission trips, uh, whether it's to Tanzania or Venezuela or Honduras, will come in contact, maybe not with quite as extreme of examples as the one I just read to you, but we'll definitely come in contact with them. At the same time, we've talked about how guilt, shame, and fear, they permeate all cultures. And so I'd like, to, like us to take a journey back to five points for just a couple of minutes, and I want us to hear what some of our friends here in Birmingham have to say about fear and its relation to their lives. Watch this with me. I don't want to go. Yeah. I fear dying without leaving something important behind. That is really important to me. I'm not scared of nothing. You have to live your life. I think it, it's uh, an ingrain. I think it's more like you don't stand on what on the right side. You, it's more like the wrong side. But what's your biggest fear? Uh, God, my dad. God and your dad. Yeah. Why, why would you say those are your biggest fears? Why is God your biggest fear? Uh, God's my biggest fear because I read the Bible. Uh -huh. And my dad, just because I got a lot of respect for him and I never want to let him down and all that jazz. You know, I believe there's fear and love. Uh, I try not to dwell in fear. You're almost scared in church. Like, don't talk, don't do, uh -huh. it's something you live with every day. You're constantly facing things that you can 
possibly fear. Where do you think feelings of fear come from? A lack of knowledge. Okay. Not not knowing what's gonna what's gonna happen. The unknown, not knowing if it's really true or if it's really possible, but you don't want to risk it, so you fear it. I, I don't want to push the envelope, but I'll fear it. Be safe. I guess fear ultimately could come from death, Satan. I mean, I think some people's fears come from failure too, you know, not not wanting to fail in life. My biggest fear is probably uh, dying and going to hell. I had a really big fear that I would, uh, you know, lose my family and everything. You know, you, so, can, you can overcome fear, but it ain't easy. Man, it ain't easy, because I was scared to drive between fear. them big trucks. You have to face it, you can't just like, it's nothing. It's something. We may not participate in different rituals and rites, but I'd be willing to bet that many of us across this room, if not all of us, at some point struggle with fear. We're fearful people. I came across a list of real diagnosable fears, phobias, that have been diagnosed medically. And there are hundreds and hundreds of them. Let me list a couple and see if you can recognize what they are. Arachnophobia is the fear of spiders. Aerophobia is the fear of flying. Claustrophobia, the fear of confined spaces. Anybody know what dentophobia is the fear of? There's actually a fear of dentists. Ecclesiophobia is the fear of the church. Ooh, is that what? Ooh. Glossophobia is the fear of speaking in public. Turnophobia is the fear of being tickled by feathers. <laughs> so you just got chills. That's one of the things you've got, yeah. Amortophobia <laughs> is the fear of sinning. Pentherophobia, anybody know what that is? Pentherophobia is the fear of your mother in law. Some of you guys, it just kind of clicked. That's what I've got. That's what. <laughs> Finally, I've been diagnosed. <laughs> Luposlipophobia. This is it's a true phobia. Luposlipophobia. The fear of being pursued by timber wolves around a kitchen table while wearing socks on a freshly waxed floor. We can find all kinds of things to say we're afraid of that are sources of fear. And so the question I want us to think about across this room this morning is what, what might be a real fear for us? What kind of evidence of fear is there in each of our lives? And what I want us to do is I want us to think about how the gospel relates to fear. And I want us to think about it so that we can be equipped in those different cultures we were talking about, but also so that we can know the power of the gospel over our own individual fear. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take the kind of pattern that we started last week. We're going to look at one verse here in 1 John chapter 4, then we're going to see that illustrated in four different stories back in the book of Mark, so that we can walk away from this time equipped with what the Word says and then God's story to be able to think about, even if it's just one of these stories, how God's story relates in a fear-based culture. 1 John chapter 4, I'm here to start in verse 16. We're going to read verse 16 and following, and I want you just to hear this, and we're going to focus on verse 18. It says, so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in him. 
In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world we are like him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. 1 John 4.18, you've got it in your notes there. This is actually the translation, English Standard Version, which I sometimes use in my study. I think it expressed it best just in the first part of that verse. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. The word here that John is using for fear is actually phobos, from which we get phobia. And all throughout Scripture, we see fear mentioned really on two different planes. Many times fear is mentioned as a good thing. There's, a, there's such thing as having a good, a healthy fear of God. But it's also mentioned oftentimes as dread, a bad thing. And that's exactly what John is addressing here. He's talking about how people can profess to be followers of Christ and yet live in fear and live in torment. Is that possible? And some people are even thinking across this room, well, I, you know, I don't have problems with fear. I don't fear God in a negative way. I, I may fear this person sometimes, or I may fear this situation, or I may fear this happening to me, but I want you to see how they're related here. Because if we really believe in the God, and this is what John is saying, if we really believe in the God of the universe and his love, infinite love for each of us, then that means we have absolutely no, no reason to fear any person, no reason to fear any situation, or no reason to fear anything that might happen to us. What John is saying here, basically two things, and these are not in your notes, they're just add-ons here, no charge, extra charge for them. He's basically saying, first of all, love is incompatible with fear. They cannot coexist. Love and fear do not go together. Love is incompatible with fear. And then second, love is invincible against fear. Perfect love casts out fear. Wherever love is, it knocks fear out of the way. So what John is saying is the love of God, exemplified in the gospel, cannot coexist with fear. And this is good news when you realize Genesis chapter 3 and the verses that follow all throughout Scripture from there talk about how we have reason to fear God because of our sin. However, because of his love, he casts it out. It's incompatible, and love is invincible against fear. I want you to see that illustrated in some incredible ways in the book of Mark. So take a left with me and go back to Mark chapter 4. What I want us to do is I want us to read the end of Mark 4, and then we're going to read through Mark 5 in different stages. What happens is that between Mark 4.35 and Mark 8.26, there are 10 miracles. So this is like a cluster of miracles here. And right here... And Mark 4, from Mark 4:35 all the way to the end of Mark, chapter 5, verse 43, what we see is four miracles that are stacked up against each other. And it's, it's this mounting sense of excitement as, as one leads to another, leads to another, and leads to another, and the last one being kind of the ultimate picture of Jesus' power. It's almost like, guys, you're watching baseball, and you see back-to-back-to-back-to-back home runs. And it's like, this can't happen. That's kind of the picture we've got here. So when you picture Mark 4 and 5, it's like back-to-back-to-back-to-back. Here we go, seeing Jesus' power. So what I want us to do is I want us to see in each one of these stories that we're about to read, I want us to see the power of Jesus displayed in four different ways. And then we're going to see a characteristic of Christ that comes to the forefront in his power. And then from that, we're going to see a promise that shows us how Christ's love for us casts out our fear. Let's start in Mark chapter 4, verse 35. That day when evening came, he, being Jesus, said to his disciples, let us go over to the other side. 
Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. There were, also, there were also other boats with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern, sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. So we've got the picture. Jesus puts the disciples in the boat. Don't miss it. Jesus actually leads them into a storm. When they get out there, they find themselves being swamped by these waves. The wind is howling, waves coming up, and as water is spraying in all of their faces, Jesus sleeps soundly. The creator of the world sleeping soundly in the middle of the storm. It's really interesting in the whole picture that we have of Christ in the Gospels. The only time we see him sleeping is actually in the middle of a storm. And so they wake him up. They're terrified, it says in verse, verse 40. The word literally means they are cowards. They are really panicking. And they're panicking, yes, in part because of this storm, but these are fishermen. They knew what it was like to be on a sea or lake like this and to have kind of storms. That's a pretty picture, picture of a pretty intense storm. That furious squall that we see talked about in verse 37 literally can mean hurricane-like storm. So they're scared about that. But I think what scared them even more is the fact that this guy who was their teacher, this guy who claimed to love and care for them, is sitting there snoozing in the middle of it. And so maybe it wasn't just the storm that was scaring these guys. Maybe it was the fact that this guy didn't seem, to like, seem like he even cared. Teacher, don't you care if we drown? We're about to drown for all you care. And you're sitting there sleeping. So they wake him up. And Jesus yawns and stretches his arms. And then he stands up and he talks to the wind and the waves like he knows them. He says, quiet, be still, literally be muzzled. There's other ways that many times we express that in our culture that I won't go to. But he talks to them and says, quiet, enough, be still. And all of a sudden, the wind and the waves die down. And it's at this point that we see Jesus has power over nature. He has power over the wind and the waves for him to stand up, speak these words, and they're still. Jesus has power over nature. So how do the disciples respond it says they were terrified in verse 41. Now, what do you mean they were terrified? I thought he, he got them through the storm. They were terrified. This is actually a different word in the language of the New Testament. This is that good type of fear. They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey them. Now, here's the characteristic of Christ that I want you to see coming in the forefront here. Jesus has power over nature, but when they see him do this, and they know that in the Old Testament, Yahweh God is the only one who has power over nature. Yahweh God is the only one who has power over the wind and the waves. What really scared them, even after the storm had died down, what really scared them was the fact that they realized that standing right in front of them was the God of the universe in the flesh. And I want you to see not just Jesus' power over nature in Mark chapter 4, but I want you to see the presence of Christ and how crucial this was for the disciples 
to realize that right there in front of them was the God of the universe in the flesh. Nobody else could calm the wind and the waves like he just did. This has to be God. And I think the most amazing realization they came to, and the whole point of Mark chapter 4, verse 35 through 41, is to bring them to this realization, to bring them to the realization that when they were in the middle of that storm, that God himself was in the boat with them. Don't miss this. This was a, a huge faith moment for these disciples. And what they learned was that faith is, is not believing that you're not going to go into a storm. Faith is not believing that everything is going to be okay in your life. You're going to be sheltered from the storms that this life might bring you. Faith is believing that in the middle of the storm, the God of the universe is right there with you. And that's huge. We almost missed that. Even many times I've heard this passage preached on. God will get you through every storm. You don't have to worry about storms in your life when you're with Jesus. Well, in a sense that's true, but in a sense it's not true. Remember the context of the book of Mark. Mark is writing this book to Christians who are experiencing some heavy persecution in the first century. And they were tempted to think, here we are facing this onslaught of persecution, and it almost seems like God is indifferent to us, like he's asleep in the middle of the boat, like he doesn't even care what's going on. Have you ever felt like that? Why is this happening? And what Mark does is he shows them st this story to remind them that faith is not confidence that you won't go through storms. Faith is not confidence that those storms will always end nice and easy just like this. Faith is confidence that no matter what the wind and the waves are, no matter how strong they are, God is right there in the middle of that boat with you. And he's not left you. And here's where the promise comes in. A love that casts out fear says in every situation, you are not alone. You're not alone. My presence is there. I have power over nature, and you are not alone. Ladies and gentlemen, I cannot guarantee you this morning, based on Mark 4, 35 through 41, I cannot guarantee you that you will not face storms in this life. And I cannot guarantee you that those storms will end tomorrow that you're facing right now. But I can guarantee you this, no matter how strong the wind or the waves are that come against you from this world, the God of the universe promises to, to you that you are not alone. He is with you. And maybe, don't miss this, this goes against everything in our mindset that places so much emphasis on us having comfort and being, being secure in the things of this world. Maybe God's power is most clearly displayed, not in keeping us from storms, but maybe God's power is most clearly displayed in getting us through storms. Does that make sense? I hope that's encouraging across this room. I know that there are probably many folks who are walking through some small storms, some pretty big storms, and I want to remind you that the Christ who calmed the Sea of Galilee with one word from his mouth is the same God who holds every atom in place, the same God who calls all the stars by names, the same God who directs the wind and the waves, and that God has promised in Christ to be with you always to the very end of the age. You are not alone. That's how his love casts out fear. Second story, you get to Mark chapter 5, verse 1. Oh, it goes all the way to verse 20. We're going to read through it. Follow along this picture. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. 
When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. For Jesus had said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. Then Jesus asked him, What is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, Send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. He gave them permission, and the evil spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. And the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your family and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed." This situation, again, seems almost unreal in a sense. Well, that happened back in the first century, but there are, there are pictures like this in other parts of the world today. Jesus basically comes face to face with this guy, but not just one demon, a whole legion of them, thousands of them living, dwelling, possessing this man. And so what we see is a face-to-face -face encounter between two spiritual powers, Christ and the demons, and we see very clearly from the very beginning that Jesus has a power, has power not just over nature in Mark chapter 4, Mark chapter 5, he has power over demons. He has power over demons. It's, it's beautiful. Even before he, he casts the demons out of the sky, do you see the, the picture of what happens, these guys come running to Jesus, or the guy comes running to Jesus, these demons possessing him, and the first thing they do is they bow down in front of Jesus. I love that picture. Isn't it great that demons, Satan, they hate and loathe everything about God, but when they are in his presence, they have nothing to do but fall on their face. Isn't that a great picture? So they fall on their face, and then they say, you are son, Jesus, son of the most high God. That's a word. That's the title of God that is used throughout the Old Testament that's used most times by Gentiles, by the nations, to refer to the greatness of Almighty God, the most high God. So they recognize who he is. And then they basically start to beg and to plead. Please don't send us out of this area. Please send us into the pork over there. Please do not. Do not do this or do not do that. They know that Jesus has superiority completely over them. I want you to see Jesus' power over demons and what that leads to in this man's transformation. Here's a guy who, who no one has been able to help. They've tried to chain him, and it hasn't even worked. 
This is a guy, put yourself in his shoes, who has lost all of his dignity. He's lost all hope of any relationships with family or friends. You don't invite this guy over to your house. He's lost all of his decency running around with no clothes in the tombs. He's lost all of his self-control, cutting himself, hurting himself. He's lost all, all purpose and really all peace in this life. So I want you to see not only Jesus' power over demons, but I want you to see, just like we saw the presence of Christ, I want you to see the peace of Christ rising in this passage. The transformation that goes from verse 3 and 4 where it says no one was able to help him, and it emphasizes over and over and over again, no one could help this guy. Down in verse 15, after he's come in contact with the presence of Jesus Christ, it says they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind complete transformation. It's actually a parallel, I think, between the passage we just read. You see Jesus rising up and taking a raging wind and waves and calming them just like that. It's exactly what he does in this guy's soul. He gives him peace. There's stillness. He's sitting there dressed in his right mind. And this guy's life is totally transformed by the peace of Christ through his power over demons. The peace of Christ now rules and reigns in him. So it's at this point that I want you to see the promise, a love that casts out fear. We've seen Christ who said in Mark chapter 4, verse 35 through 41, with his power and his presence, he said, you're not alone. Well, here, with his power over demons and with the peace that he brings, he says to this guy, you are safe in me. You're safe in me. Now, I want you to, I want you to follow with me here. Don't miss this. I'm not saying this necessarily means we're safe from difficult times safe from trials and tragedy that we might face in our life. But I am saying this. There is absolutely nothing Satan or his demons can do to any one of God's children outside of the authority of Jesus Christ. I think we have a temptation to give Satan a lot more credit than he deserves for things we see. He's doing this or he's doing this. Don't forget, even though the Bible calls him the prince of this world, he is not the king of all kings, and he is not the Lord of all lords. And as a result, for all who have trusted in Christ, we are in Christ, and in him we have complete and total security. And there is nothing, absolutely nothing, that the adversary can do to penetrate your spirit without his safety being around you. You know what's really interesting about this passage? It hit me when I was studying this this week. For the first time, I'd read this passage different times, but it hit me. You know what? The demons were afraid when they came in contact with Jesus. Why were they afraid? They were afraid because of what they believed, right? They knew that Jesus was the Son of the Most High God. They knew he had authority over them. They knew that there's coming a day when they would be judged eternally and cast into hell. They knew that. And that's why they were afraid, because of what they believed, because of what they knew. But then you take us and the fears we have. Why, do, why are we sometimes struggling with fear? Why are we afraid? We're afraid not because of what we know, not because of what we believe. We're afraid because of what we don't believe. You see the difference? Jesus is the Son of the Most High God. He does have authority over everything in this world, including any supernatural powers. He has authority over them all. 
And if we believe that, then we would not need to fear. However, any fear we have comes from our unbelief. Don't miss it. Demons fear because of what they believe. We fear because of what we don't believe. Now, this whole story is a challenge for us. Because of the enlightenment and rationalism, we think, well, you're talking about supernatural powers and this and that. Have we just gone off the deep end? Absolutely not, ladies and gentlemen. The Bible teaches that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the powers and the authorities of this dark world and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Supernatural power is real. And I want to remind you that we have no reason to fear because Jesus has authority over them all. And he says, you are safe in me. See, back to back. Now let's see the third home run, okay? Actually, the third and the fourth home runs here, the back to back, last part of this thing, are actually two stories and one is sandwiched between the other two. And so we're gonna read both stories and then think about how they relate to each other. Start in verse 21. When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers named Jairus came there. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with them. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, the disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. So we've got this story of Jairus and his daughter on the outside and sandwiched in between is the story of this woman with the issue of blood for 12 years. Let's start with that story on the inside. I want you to see this woman coming up to Jesus, a crowd around her, and this is a woman who has had this problem for 12 years. And it's not just a physical problem that no doctors have been able to help. Mark is intentional to tell us that. You read over in the book of Luke when he tells this story. He doesn't mention about the doctors because Luke was a doctor and he doesn't want to give doctors a bad name. But Mark points him out and he says, doctors, nobody could help, him, could help this lady. And so 
So she comes up, and she, it, the word, the language in there, it's beautiful. It's like she's saying over and over to herself, if I just touch his cloak, if I just touch his cloak, if I do, just touch his cloak. And she comes up and touches him, and then seemingly just runs away. But immediately she feels something completely different. Immediately. And we see not just Jesus' power over nature and power over demons. Next picture, we see Jesus' power over disease. He heals her in that moment. But don't miss it. Her being healed of this issue with blood is, yes, a very significant part of the story, but it is exactly that, only part of the story. If that was all that we were supposed to get out of this story, then Jesus continues on walking and she runs away. But that's not the picture that we're seeing of Jesus. We're not just seeing his power over disease. I want you to see rise, rising here in this passage the healing of Christ. The healing of Christ that is much more than even for this woman, her being healed of this issue of blood. What happens is as soon as she touches him, he turns around and obviously he says, somebody touched me. His disciples are, are thinking, well, of course, like everybody. He says, no, no, something happened. And he calls out. And this woman comes to him humbly. Now, don't miss the picture here. This is a woman who, yes, have had, has had this physical problem for 12 years, but that's not her only problem. As a result of her physical problem, the law had said that a woman during this time with this kind of issue would be unclean, and so she was not allowed to participate in the temple worship at all. She was not allowed to participate in the religious life of the people of Israel. Not only that, but because she was unclean, if she were to touch other people when she's unclean, then she would defile them. And so her social life for the last 12 years has completely been undercut. Nobody wants to be around her. She's afraid to touch anybody. And don't miss the beauty then. Put yourself in her shoes. She comes up to Jesus, and she dares to touch him. She risks defiling all the people that she goes through in the crowd, and then she risks defiling this teacher, this rabbi, this miracle worker, by touching him. And so she bolts right after she does. Jesus turns around, calls her out. She comes back, kneeling, humbling before him, and says, I, I'm the one who did. I came. And he looks at her, and he says in the most affectionate of terms, daughter, your faith has healed you. And the word he uses is used at other places in the New Testament to talk about how we are saved, how we are delivered. This is more than just you've been healed of your disease. Your faith has healed you. And he says, go in peace. The picture of Old Testament, shalom, complete wholeness. You are freed from your suffering. You're free to worship. You are free to interact with those around you. You are made complete. And Jesus did all that by turning around, seeking her out, and saying, I give you complete restoration. Not just restoration in your physical body. I restore you to be whole. Don't miss the promise in this passage, a love that casts out fear. A woman who I'm guessing at this point was pretty superstitious. If I can just touch him and I'm gone, I'll be okay. But she realizes that Jesus is actually interested in her life. A love that casts out fear doesn't just say you're not alone. It doesn't just say you're safe in me. But a love that casts out fear is Jesus Christ saying, I care about you. I care for you. In a crowd of people, Jesus turns to this one woman, gives, him her, his full, gives her his full attention, and says, I care about your life. 
This is an amazing picture. The God of the universe in the flesh, the creator of the world, walking through a crowd of people onto a great miracle he's about to perform. And all of a sudden, this humble woman that nobody wants to be around for the last 12 years just touches him. And he stops and he turns and he looks at her. He gives her his full attention and he brings complete and total peace to her. What an amazing picture. I want to remind you that even in a room like this this morning with hundreds of people in here, that the God of the universe gives you his attention that he stops to care, not just for the person beside you, in front of you, behind you. He stops to care for you. He is concerned about you. And he's concerned, yes, about physical problems. He's concerned about emotional problems. He's concerned about, about spiritual problems. All in all, though, he is concerned about you being whole and you having his complete and total healing. Does that mean healing in your sickness? Maybe, maybe not. But it does mean a healing that supersedes any sickness that might come upon us in this world. He cares for you. And he says, you are freed from your suffering. You're free. Now that story is sandwiched in between the larger story and it really sets the stage intentionally described this way by Mark to give us a picture, yes, of Jesus' power over disease, but then ultimately his power over death. This story that's been on the front end and the back end of this, she just walks into that room, says, little girl, rise up, get up, and she dies. It's a beautiful picture. He walked in and he said, She's not, she's not dead, she's asleep. That wasn't Jesus saying a medical diagnosis. She's actually in a really bad coma. It's what Jesus is saying, her, her death is actually temporary. Kind of like when you go to sleep, that's, that's how her death is. Because I'm about to walk in there and do something that you're going to regret laughing about. And he walks in and he heals and shows his power over death. But I want you to see in this picture the, the, the interaction between Jesus and Jairus. Jairus is a synagogue ruler, a leader in Jewish life who was desperate. It was not popular to go to Jesus as a synagogue ruler, as a leader. All throughout Scripture we see the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, religious leaders in Judaism not wanting to go to Jesus. You don't want to go to Jesus for help. He's the bad guy, so to speak. And he runs to Jesus and falls down and says, please come and heal my daughter. She's very sick. And then when they get sidetracked by this other story, and people come and say, well, it's too late. Your daughter's already dead. When everybody else hangs their heads, Jesus looks at Jairus in the eye and he says, don't be afraid. Keep on believing. We've seen the presence of Christ and the peace of Christ. We've seen the healing of Christ. Now I want you to see the hope of Christ. Don't be afraid. Don't fear. Why? Keep on believing. Don't stop believing. Don't quit, Jairus. Hold on to this hope. Now, don't miss it. This is not avoiding the real despair in this passage. There is very real despair. This man has just found out that his, his daughter has died. And he is hurting. It's the same picture we see over in John chapter 11 when Lazarus dies and Martha and Mary are weeping. And what does Jesus do with them? He's not, he's not sheltered from despair. What does he do in verse 35? He weeps with them. 
His tears identify with their tears. He doesn't avoid the despair of this passage. At the same time, he gives a real hope in the middle of real despair. And it's not a hope that says, well, I hope things will work out this way. I hope my team will win. I hope in the end everything will be okay. This is biblical hope. Biblical hope is a confidence that no matter what happens, this is going to happen. It's not a wish, not a desire, maybe. It is a confident, yes, keep on believing. And so he goes and he raises her up. He says, she's not sleeping. He walks in and says, little girl, get up. And she gets up and begins to walk around. And we see Jesus' hope in action. And this is the ultimate picture of a love that casts out fear. Because a love that casts out fear, and the reason why I can say to all of us this morning, based on the authority of God's word, that we have no reason to fear, is because Jesus has said to us, not just you're not alone, not you're safe in me and I care for you, but ultimately he says to us, you will live forever. You'll live forever. I remind you of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 51, that uses the same word here. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. Oh, death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. He gives us the victory. One of my favorite preachers from the past is D.L. Moody. He preached around Chicago, inner city, and then all around the United States and Europe and Great Awakening and Revival. When as a young man, he was called upon to preach a funeral sermon, he began to search the Gospels to find one of Jesus' funeral messages, only to discover that Jesus never preached one. He found instead that Jesus broke up every funeral he attended by raising the dead person back to life. And when the dead person heard his voice, they immediately came to life. That's good, isn't it? Jesus doesn't preach any funeral sermons throughout the Gospels. As soon as he speaks, they're alive, and the funeral is over. Isn't that a great picture? Canadian scientist G.B. Hardy, listen to what he said. When I looked at religion, I said, I have two questions. One, has anybody ever conquered death? And two, if they have, did they make a way for me to conquer death? I checked the tomb of Buddha, and it was occupied. And I checked the tomb of Confucius, and it was occupied. And I checked the tomb of Muhammad, and it was occupied. And I came to the tomb of Jesus, and it was empty. And I said, there is one who conquered death. And I asked the second question, did he make a way for me to do it? And I opened the Bible and discovered that he said, because I live, you shall also live. There are two questions. Two questions. Is there someone who has conquered death? And if so, is he able to conquer death for me? Has he provided a way for me to conquer death? And the answer is yes. Jesus Christ has conquered death. And he has made a way for us to conquer death as well. If we need not fear death, then what do we need to fear? If the ultimate picture of the end, death, is completely taken care of, then that means his love has cast out all fear in between. Father's Day, my first one, an exciting day. At the same time, always a tender day. Since my own dad passed away a few years ago, unexpectedly, just like that, from a heart attack. But I remind you, this morning, based on the authority of Jesus Christ himself, that heart attacks do not have the last word. And cancer does not have the last word. 
and AIDS does not have the last word, and Alzheimer's and Parkinson's don't have the last word, and car accidents don't have the last word, and tsunamis and earthquakes don't have the last word, and tornadoes and hurricanes don't have the last word. The one who has power over nature, who has power over demons, the one who has power over disease, and the one who has power over death, he has the last word. And he says to all of us in this room who trust in him, you are not alone. You're safe in me. I care for you. And even though you die, you will live forever. Will you bow your heads with me? As we bow our heads and close our eyes, I, I want you to let the truth of what we've seen in God's word penetrate your heart. What are you fearing this morning? Maybe big, maybe small. But if I were to ask you, what is your biggest fear? And what would the answer be? Maybe it is a person. Maybe it is a situation. Maybe it is something happening in this particular way or that particular way. And I want to invite you to face that fear with Jesus in the foreground. And I want you to hear his words to you. You are not alone. He's in the boat with you. Hear him saying to you, you're safe in me. Ultimately, you are safe in me. I care for you. I'm not just concerned about the masses. I'm concerned about you. I stop and come to you. And I have conquered the ultimate that you could ever fear. Because you will live forever, you have nothing to fear in this life. Over the next couple of minutes, we're going to listen to the words of a gospel song that I'm guessing is familiar to many of us, but I pray that the words and the truth would penetrate our hearts. And with our heads bowed and eyes closed across this room, I want to invite men and women, boys and girls who are here this morning who who may not know that you live forever. If you have not come to the point where you have trusted in Jesus, you have seen a picture this morning of his story in a fear-based culture. His story as it relates to our fears, and I want to invite you all across this room during the next couple of minutes as we listen to the words of the song to say in your own heart, I trust you, Jesus. That's all salvation is. I trust you, Jesus, to save me from my sins. I trust in you who you are. I believe. I believe in you. And I trust you to take away all my fears because you, you have died on the cross. You have rose from the grave. And you and you alone have the power to overcome my fears. You alone have the power to save and to heal me. I invite you to do that. And after I pray and we begin to listen to this song, maybe you want to sing along if you'd like, even to come down to the front, much like we did last week, and you'd like to spend some time just in prayer, laying your fears, so to speak, maybe even in a physical way. I'm laying this before you, God. I pray that you would take it and show your power in my life in the way we see in Mark chapter 4 and 5. Whether that's removing the storm or whether that's giving me power through the storm, I trust in you. Dear God, I pray that across this room, the truth, 
that all fear is gone and your love would captivate our hearts and our minds. God, we praise you as we bring all of our hurts, all of our concerns, all the storms that surround us, the storms that will surround us in the future, we bring them to you and we pray that you would make us a people who know that there is no fear in love because perfect love casts out all fear. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Because he lives, all fear is gone. I want you to let these words soak in. This altar is open. I'm going to ask a couple people, leaders of our church, just to be available on the side up here if you'd like to pray with somebody. But I want to invite you to let these words penetrate your heart as we reflect on what God's word has said to us this morning.